It's time now for Illinois Innovators, spotlighting the leaders in research, technology, and entrepreneurship from the engineering at Illinois community. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Quantum information science has been called the next technological space race, and the University of Illinois is positioning itself to be at the forefront of that race. In November, the University of Illinois pledged $15 million to the formation of the Illinois Quantum Information Science and Technology Center, or IQUIST. The goal is to expand the number of quantum science experts across multiple departments and develop a program to educate the next generation quantum workforce. Also in November, physics professors Brian DeMarco, Paul Quiat, and Dale Van Harligan represented the University of Illinois at the inaugural Chicago Quantum Summit. Professor DeMarco and Economic Development and Innovation Founder Professor of Physics Ed Seidel also attended the Advancing American Leadership in Quantum Information Science Leadership Summit at the White House in September. Two of those leaders are with us today, Brian DeMarco and Paul Quiat. Join us on the program. Uh, both have been ingrained in this field for uh, more than two decades. Uh, Professor DeMarco earned a Ph.D. in physics from the University of Colorado at Boulder and is the chair of the NASA Physical Sciences uh, Standing Board. And Professor Quiat received his Ph.D. from the University of California at Berkeley. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. I'm going to have you introduce yourself for the, uh, the um, benefit of the people listening so that they can tell that your voices apart. Here's Professor DeMarco. Just tell a little bit, about your, uh, little bit more about your background first. So this is Brian, and it's great to be here with you today. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York and got into physics um, at a young age and fell in love with quantum science. And so when I did my PhD, I got hooked permanently on this area. I did a postdoc with David Wineland at NIST in Boulder, Colorado, wh where I worked on building some of the first rudimentary quantum computers. And then I came to University of Illinois in 2003, and I've been here ever since. And Paul, you uh, talk, talk a little more about your ba uh, background. Um, graduated ni uh, PhD in 1993 and have been at Illinois uh, for a long time. I'll give you a chance to uh, tell about your background and then uh, give us kind of the basics of quantum mechanics. Great. So uh, pleasure to be here. And yeah, I actually grew up in the Midwest and uh, I left Ohio and swore I would never come back to the Midwest, but here I am since 2001. But the weather here is usually much better than the weather in Ohio. Um, so I, since graduate, I, I was quite lucky that I was studying some basic fundamental physics things as a graduate student about how to make entangled states, these quantum correlated states. And while I was there, quantum information came into being. People realized that you could use those, for example, for doing secure communication, quantum cryptography. And then I went and did a uh, postdoc position in Austria with uh, Anton Zeilinger's group, who's quite well known. And then I went to Los Alamos National Laboratory for six years uh, and started working with the groups there doing both quantum computing and also uh, quantum encryption. So uh, quantum mechanics, what is quantum mechanics? That's a question we're asked all the time, I suppose. And it really came to, to be at the beginning of the last century uh, when people realized that particles typically that are you know very small, like electrons and protons and single particles of light photons, uh, can behave very different than classical objects like baseballs and things. They can be in multiple places at once in some sense because they act like waves. And that, in fact, 
allowed us to understand why there are atoms and how they interact and all of chemistry, and then played a huge role in technology, allowing things like microelectronics and transistors, uh, responsible for the laser, uh, MRIs, magnetic resonance imaging is all based on uh, flipping of nuclear spins and such, and so those are all technologies that had tremendous technological importance for people and for people's lives based on quantum mechanics. Pe people typically call that the, the first quantum revolution when people were first discovering quantum mechanics, and there are some other aspects that were part of it that weren't really part of the technology that we used. So this one of entanglement is maybe the best example. Um, particles can be entangled in quantum mechanically, and that allows them to have kind of correlations no matter how far apart they are. So just the simplest example, you could imagine uh, if you and I each have a six-sided dice, and uh, we're going to, in our separate rooms, we're going to roll the dice, and we find out when we talk on the phone that although we were equally likely to get one through six, we always got the same number whenever we, we rolled it, which classically would just never happen, of course. It would only happen you know, one-sixth of the time. Um, so that you can use that, then it turns out, for things in information processing. And that realization is sort of what led then to the second quantum revolution. Well, Brian, talk a little bit about that. Uh, probably, th we're, we're talking, what, 80s and, and maybe growing into the 90s? I think 80s and growing into the 90s, people started to understand that you could use quantum mechanics and quantum entanglement, which Paul just spoke about in ways to enhance the power of computers. And people started to talk about the idea of a quantum computer. This idea went back to a talk uh, given by in 1981, I think, by Richard Feynman at Caltech University, where he proposed that some of the stickiest and hardest problems in quantum mechanics, you might need quantum mechanics to solve, or a quantum computer. So I think before you talk about what a quantum computer is, or what it could be, it's useful to talk about just a regular computer, or a supercomputer. So inside a computer, there is a memory, and that memory is made up of bits, and those bits can be either zero or one. And those bits can be grouped together to make numbers. You can make numbers like integers, and you can even represent a decimal number inside a computer. Those, those bits can also be organized into instructions for what's called the central processing unit in a computer. And so what you do when you work with a computer is you have some way to put an in input, like your keyboard, that input tells the computer, go look at these bits in the memory, follow the instructions, use the numbers stored in the memory, do something, compute the average of 10 numbers if you need to figure out something in Excel, and then give you some output that's displayed on your screen. So that's what a, a classical computer is. And there are some problems that are very hard for even our largest supercomputers. Those are things like um, simulating materials, like superconductors or understanding and calculating the properties of molecular complexes, like the molecular complexes relate, uh, responsible for photosynthesis, or even what's called the nurse scheduling problem. If you run a hospital with a 1,000 nurses, you want to do the best possible job of meeting all their constraints, like when they need to be home with their family, but you need to cover all the shifts. How do you do that in an optimal way? All those problems, as we make more and more powerful supercomputers, they really can't solve those problems at a scale that we care about, and they never will. And why is that? And why is, I mean, I guess at the center is why is quantum computing able to do that? And supercomputers, which seem, uh, based on its, uh, its name, super should be able to do almost anything. Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, we don't know all the answers to that question, but I can give you some examples which are kind of right. 
So to solve all those problems, people got interested in quantum computers, and there's some things that we know they can do faster. And I gave you some examples that are important to our everyday lives. Um, why is it better? So there's an example I give, which is, is not exactly right, but it tells you something about it. So in nature, what we use to make quantum bits, so what's different about a quantum computer, it has quantum bits or qubits in it. That's one thing that's different about it. And they can be entangled with each other. Those qubits, they also have a, um, uh, they can be zero or one or, or zero and one and all kinds of different combinations. But let's just say you, we want to keep track of um, a typical kind of qubit, which is what's called the spin of an electron. Every electron looks like a magnet. And just for the sake of argument, let's just pretend you have a chain of, of these electron spins, just 300 of them. And all you want to do is keep track of them being up and down, north pole up or north pole down. So to do that, it takes, um, and it's quantum mechanical electron spins, which they are, it would take 2 to the power of 300 numbers just to represent all the possible configurations of those um, quantum spins because you have, to take, you have to keep track of the quantum entanglement. So 2 to the 300, power of 300, that's the same thing as 10 to the power of 90, which is more numbers than there are protons in the universe. So just representing that number, that the, what all those quantum spins are doing or quantum um, magnets are doing, you'll never be able to do with any supercomputer. So that's one example of why quantum computers are more powerful, because you just need about 300 or maybe 1,000 or 3,000, but not more than the number of protons there are in the universe. Uh, I'll let you add to that. Oh, well, I'll just say, I don't necessarily share this perspective, but there are people at some of the founders in quantum computing, like David Deutsch, and it's their perspective that the reason quantum computers are so powerful is that there, there are believers in the so-called many or adherence to the many, many universes or many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is that whenever some quantum event happens, the universe sort of branches into the two pieces. And so their explanation that I've heard of why the quantum computers are better is that in some sense they're co-processing simultaneously in all these universes at once. Um, so you can't actually prove that that's really what's happening and it's just a different interpretation of quantum mechanics, but it does give a sense of why quantum computers might be super powerful because they can be doing all these things simultaneously. Give us an idea kind of where we are in this field because there has been growing interest in quantum computing. Have there been discoveries lately that have kind of have led to this? Is it just a, a thinking that people are starting to realize the power of the quantum computer and all the... Uh, um, the uh, ways that can can be used. Yeah, so I guess I would say the breakthrough moment came with this, actually first an algorithm, Peter Shor's factoring algorithm that showed that you could factor large numbers quickly on a quantum computer. And the reason you would care about that is that basically that's underlying anytime you send some transaction by email or you put your credit card online, it's using, it's assuming that that's a hard mathematical problem to, to factor Factoring 15 into 3 times 5 is easy, but if I give you a number that's 100 digits long, you won't actually be able to factor it uh, with any computer that we currently have. And right at the same time, uh, some people realized, well, we could use, for example, ions in a trap, and those could be quantum bits. And this is a system that Brian actually worked on when he was uh, postdoc. a postdoc. Sorry. And uh, I think that's kind of what started it. Uh, that there was some physical systems, and then people started looking at other physical systems. So ion traps are certainly one of the most uh, viable candidates now, although in terms of the number of qubits that they have, at the moment it's something like 10 to 3 to the 
Uh, it depends what what way what benchmarks you care about. I mean, they can make they can trap forty or fifty of these atomic quantum bits together, and a similar uh, different technology has reached a similar milestone. Those are so-called superconducting circuits, or transmon qubits, and they several um, companies now, for example, IBM and Google are building systems based on that kind of technology, and they can make a similar scale quantum computer. Um, that can start to do tasks that are difficult for a classical computer, but not impossible. And so I think one thing that's changed recently is there's been an advancement in the technology that's gotten into a level where it starts to look like something that could be useful. And some of the biggest players, Microsoft, Google, IBM, Honeywell, um, and there are new startups too, like IonQ and Rigetti, are um, very seriously, and they were all came to the, the White House Quantum Summit approaching this technology is something which may drive the economy in another 10 to 20 years. So talk a little bit about that, the White House Summit, because obviously when you're talking the White House is interested, the, it kind of gives you a sense of, um, you know, the, the light bulb goes on and, and there's it really senses the importance that people are finding. What type of people were there? What were the conversations like? And, you know, wh where do we think that, um, what were the takeaways, if you will? Right, so that was an exciting event, and it was really aimed to highlight this emerging research area and to help Congress um, get the oomph behind them they needed to sign the National Quantum Initiative, uh, to pass the National Quantum Initiative, rather, which was signed by President Trump on December 26th. So at the White House Summit, there were leaders from industry there. There was leaders from IBM, from Google, from Microsoft. There were also um, professors like me who work in this research area, leaders, scientific leaders. And there were stakeholders from the Department of Defense and the intelligence community where many of the potential applications for quantum computers have high impact. <coughs> At that event, we, you know, there was a little bit of a dog and pony show, which was part of the purpose of it. But we also had these fantastic breakout sessions and discussions. I was in one session where we talked about the need to make the quantum workforce. So if this is really an area that drives the economy 20 years down the road, then um, we need to have the workforce ready to fill all the positions we'll need when IBM starts um, sending quantum computers off of an assembly line. And we don't know how to do that yet. But this is one reason that two people from Illinois were invited is because we have a fantastic engineering school where physics is inside engineering, inside our engineering college, highly rated, highly ranked engineering, electrical computer engineering, and computer science departments, and a convergence of those areas is really needed to drive this to the next level. And so there are great discussions about what does that look like? How do we get that workforce together? How do we get the infrastructure together? How do we get all the um, scientific advances we need to really m get this to the next level? And there were great discussions there that day. Well, that brings us to IQUIST, which is you know, one of the uh, pillars of IQUIST is to develop the, the workforce that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So um, what, how, how is that going to happen? Obviously, the university has um, made a really big investment in that. And as I said, one of the pillars is to educate the next generation workforce, which uh, judging from uh, what Brian has learned um, is going to be in, in high demand. Yeah, I think that's true. So we were uh, very grateful that the university came at this moment uh, with this investment. It certainly could not have come at a, at a better time. And if it had come a couple years later than that, it I think would have been 
really too late with the, the tide of, of uh, the tsunami of, of interest that's going in this area at the moment. So uh, in order to facilitate that, uh, as you mentioned, we're making a number of new hires. So there's several faculty searches going on right now. And over the next several years, we expect to make another uh, roughly eight to 10 new hires in this area. Uh, we actually had our first all-hands retreat uh, just exactly a week ago. And there's roughly 30 people already on campus. And it's one of the things that's rather unique about us is that they're distributed. It's not just all in physics. It's in physics, electrical engineering, computer science, in the math department. And that's going to be critical because one of the things that comes up at a lot of these meetings now is that the time for quantum information uh, research only in the laboratory, only in the science laboratory, only in the physics laboratory is really over. So of course, we still need to do that kind of fundamental research. But now is really where we need to start doing the engineering so that we go from you know, a basic, do I want to think about it, a basic transistor, what John Bardeen you know, was one of the co-inventors of. But it was kind of a big clunky thing. It then took a lot of engineering to make that the thing that is now driving basically all the electronics that we have. So the same thing needs to happen in the quantum space, both for computing and all other things as well. Computing for quantum communication, for quantum sensing. Those are all things, some of which may actually have more impact on people than, than even the computing issue. Certainly, certainly it's not going to be the case that everyone's going to have their own quantum computers sitting in their house, I think. That's not... I think that will never happen in anyone's lifetime, basically. But I could easily imagine a case where everyone has a small quantum sensor, and maybe they have some way of quantum linking through the library, accessing on the quantum cloud and being able to run their programs on some other computer that's, that's located somewhere. But to do that, you have to have a quantum network set up as well. Give the folks an idea of, of the uh, things that are going on in your lab, because in, in looking at your research page, um, very interested in a, ver a variety of things all involve, uh, most of them involve quantum, quantum mechanics. So talk about those things and how it's going to impact um, this growing revolution. So we've been, uh, so my research has qu quite a range from very fundamental things, trying to understand this phenomenon of entanglement when you have ever larger systems and how you should characterize it and what it might be good for. To, to in some sense more practical things. So for example, we have uh, some money from the Navy trying to develop uh, quadcopter-based quantum cryptography where we'll be able to send signals from one to the other. And that could make a much more flexible system for that sort of uh, arrangement. And also as a stepping stone toward eventually doing uh, quantum networking. Um, just because you mentioned it, we also have kind of a fun experiment involving people. We're trying to see whether people can see single photons. And so if any people are interested in that, they should get in contact with us. We're always willing to have other victims, I should sorry, <laughs> other subjects to, to sit in our, in our chairs and uh, trying to detect single quantum with their eyes. So uh, we want to obviously expand um, the number of faculty and researchers here. Um, and you mentioned that we're not talking necessarily just physicists. We're talking about computer scientists and, and uh, electrical compu computer uh, professors. What are the other areas that, that, that um, you feel like will be touched in, in terms of uh, this center? So I think that's a great question, which is what a professor always says when he's not sure how to answer <laughs> it. So I'm thinking now, and I, I think um, there's a lot of great connections. So Paul mentioned um, that this is an area where we're also collaborating with math. So for example, Paul has a collaboration with a math professor on um, understanding how much information you can pack into a quantum system, which is a question that is very broad ranging. 
I think there are great ties with chemistry, right? I mentioned how one of the applications for a quantum computer could be determining rather exactly and better than any supercomputer the properties of molecular complexes, big arrangements of atoms and complex geometries. And so there'll be an important interface there to talk with people in chemistry and understand what are the important problems, and then we need to come back and figure out, well, how do we address those problems? So I think the potential um, applications in the application space is a way that IQIS will connect all across campus. Uh, you know, for example, I had um, a professor who's a friend in aerospace engineering talk to me the other day saying, hey, Brian, I heard that quantum compu computers could do X because people say quantum computers can do anything. And this case is true, is help solve certain equations that he cares about and understand airflow around wings and things like that. And he's right. We don't know quite how to do that yet. But we need to think about how do we connect to those areas and um, get them involved in building the hardware and the software we need to move forward. Well, Paul, you mentioned that if we had done this two years down the road, it would have been too late. Wh you know, why is this? Why, why is it important that Illinois make this investment now as opposed to, to wait a couple of years? Yeah, so you gave us a great lead-in when you said there was essentially a quantum space race, and that could have been meant sort of uh, figuratively, but actually quite literally it's true. So a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, one of my uh, colleagues or competitors, depending on how you say, in China actually they launched the first satellite that did quantum communication from uh, space to the ground, and so that was really a big deal. Uh, things that they did, I wouldn't say were particularly useful, but they were a demonstration of proof of principle that really got a lot of people's attention. And so there's a huge effort now going on in China and also a huge effort going on in uh, all of Europe. They just have the quantum flagship, which is a $1 billion uh, investment that's coming up there. So in that sense, the U.S. has been a little bit more conservative, I would say, uh, up until this point. So now that's finally the, the, the anchors are, are being lifted and, and the U.S. is going to take off at high speed. Um, if <laughs> so it would have been really bad if they had already taken off and we were still putting our running shoes on. Basically, we would not be able to participate in that race. But as it is, we're really right at the, at the starting block with, with the other two or three key, uh, key runners, as it were. And so we're pretty confident that we can make a, uh, a valid and useful contribution to the whole thing. Well, you folks were in Chicago back in November, and there seems to be, we talked a little bit about um, what makes Illinois, University of Illinois, unique, but if you throw in Argonne National Lab and Fermi Lab and University of Chicago and, and um, some of the other uh, educational uh, institutions in the Midwest, it seems like you have a critical mass of, of, of folks that can really make this a center for um, any all things quantum down the road. What do you think? I think that's exactly right. And in fact, there was a, a group of people, including me, who went to go do congressional briefings for our representatives from Illinois in December. There was me representing University of Illinois, people from Northwestern, University of Chicago, Argonne and Fermilab, to tell our Congress people and our senators and their staff why Illinois is in the Midwest, really Illinois, because we're from Illinois, is so well positioned to have a huge impact in this area. Part of it is that um, we have a great uh, group of people who have a fantastic legacy at University of Illinois and at all these institutions and are on already taking steps on the threshold of, of all these exciting research areas. And there's not many places that have such great national labs in such close proximity to a large city. You know, Argonne National Lab has great materials research 
um, which will play a huge role in what's to come next. And Fermilab has great knowledge on all kinds of things like superconducting cavities and um, complex electronics. And you know, I think the combination of all those players is extremely powerful. So we've talked a little about, I know in the, in the press release, the history that Illinois has in these areas. Just talk about the, the history that we've had, we have here and, and how this really fits in. Yeah, so uh, maybe not everyone is aware of how important the University of Illinois has been throughout all of our technological history, uh, particularly with regard to information science. So for example, uh, we had the first automatic computer here, uh, magnetic resonance imaging, Paul Lauterbur basically co-invented that as a technique that now lots and lots of people get. And we could come back to actually the, the quantum uh, upgrade of that that might come with the, with the new revolution. Uh, Light-emitting diodes and uh, visible uh, laser diodes, those are things that Nick Holoniak basically pioneered. Uh, again, incredibly important. I mean, these are things that if they didn't do it, your life would be just re really rather different. I mean, you, they're used all the time in, in lighting and la laser checkout systems and such. And also the, uh, the first modern internet browser. So it's, it's hard to imagine a place that would have a stronger legacy in so many of these key issues. Now the idea is those are all things from last century. Now we need to do what's the quantum equivalent of, of all of them. Um, and so we've talked about computing and uh, we talked a little bit about trying to do a quantum network or something like that. So I'll just, one of the other examples might be like a quantum sensor where you could imagine doing an MRI. Uh, for people who have had an MRI, right, you have to go into this big machine and you got to lay there for 20 minutes and it makes a terrible clacking noise. And uh, people can now use quantum mechanical systems to make much more sensitive measurements. And so you could imagine in 15 years having a system where you would just put on a jacket for two minutes and it would do exactly the same thing and it wouldn't make lots of loud noise or anything like that. And that would just be you know, incredibly helpful for people. And you'd get better resolution, you'd be able to get more information, uh, and maybe it wouldn't cost nearly as much because you're just putting a jacket on. Um, and so that's the sort of thing e that pe people don't always think about sensing as maybe the in quantum information, but it's likely to be one of the things that's really important. In the same way that with your cell phone, one of the way main reasons that people, they're so useful is because they sense, they know where you are with respect to the GPS system and things like that. Uh, and so that's one of the main reasons, you know, people hardly use them as telephones anymore. They more use them for, for localization and telling the Uber drivers where they should come pick you up. Go ahead. And so one thing I'd say that is perhaps most exciting about where this is all going is we don't know where it's all going. You know, the most important and transformative technologies in human history were things that we didn't plan. One example is radio, right? Paul mentioned a cell phone. A cell phone's a radio. It communicates to other cell towers and cell phones through radio, communicates to GPS with radio. The person who um, discovered radio waves, Heinrich Hertz, when he was asked what they were good for in the 1880s, he said, and this was an exact quote, nothing, I guess. And that's because people just could not see the way forward to a cell phone. The same was true of a laser. The same is true of all the research that led up to GPS, which is really part of the first quantum revolution. There's an atomic clock, which is a quantum device. Uh, there's three or four of them on every GPS satellite in orbit. So I think one thing that people are most excited about is the potential we haven't imagined here yet that is likely to be the most transformative. So we kind of go back to the space race idea. Mm -hmm. um, do, do, you know, what's the thing out there that we, we have to be first or the, the next so that, that we are first as opposed to somebody else? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it, so I have one uh, uh, 
colleague of mine who says, I don't need to be first, I just need to be best. Right. Right? So in some sense, that's, that's true. Although if you're best, but it's 20 years down the line, then it's, then it's probably not so good. So certainly, uh, we, in terms of quantum computing, that's, we've already talked a lot about that, and sensing. Um, but things with networking and being able to connect things over longer distances, we've certainly seen that that's how all of our computing has moved, is to everything being online and cloud computing and being able to hook things up. And uh, that also connects back into this issue of sensing. Uh, so for example, one of the new applications of, proposed applications of uh, quantum networking is to do uh, much better telescopes. So basically the resolution of a telescope depends on the size of the lens. And in principle, you could make a lens that was 100 miles across, except you can't actually fabricate a lens that's 100 miles across. So, but if instead you can do sort of pieces of the lens that are separated by 100 miles, then you can get effectively a telescope that has much better resolution. The problem is right now you basically can't do that because you can't keep the pieces stabilized with respect to each other. And, uh, and also you have to kind of get the signal from one to the other and it's, it's difficult to do. And so it's been proposed that you could use a quantum network to basically teleport quantum teleportation of the signal from one telescope to the other one, and that, if you could get do that correctly, would really give you an amazing resolution. So you could look at exoplanets and be able to see cities on exoplanets if there were such things. Wow, that is so cool. <laughs> um, talk a little bit about what, what's next, because we've talked about some summits that we've had recently, and, and obviously they uh, com come out of any good meeting or kind of assignments or next steps or, or you know, wh where do we go from here? Um, where do you see the next steps? Well, so here at the University of Illinois campus, we have um, work to do in getting IQUIST, our center, launched. And um, there's a number of things to do there. We would like to start developing our own educational programs. We are renovating office space and renovating a shared research space. So one of the most exciting aspects of IQUIST from my perspective is that we have a plan to develop a quantum test bed here and that'll be a sandbox where um, researchers from physics, electrical engineering, computer science, math can all come together and play with what we'll call a distributed quantum computer. So just like there are, um, when you send computing tasks or work with cloud computing, like Azure and um, other systems like that, you know, there are computers all over the place that are distributed where you can take care of the heat and the power needs and they break up the computing task into lots of little pieces and they're able to work at much larger scales that way. There's an I same idea of something like that for a quantum computer, but you need small quantum processors connected by quantum networks to have that kind of quantum cloud. And so we're gonna try building something like that here and see what we can invent to do with it. So that's one next step for us that I'm particularly excited about. One of the things I think that the physics department does well here is to be able to explain things that you can't see and make them visual. So how are people going to be able to see things that are happening in quantum computing and, and see it and say that is really cool? Oh, that's a very good question. This is what professors say when they don't know the answer, <laughs> I've been told. Um, so we definitely pride ourselves on doing a lot of public outreach and uh, Brian was saying that people didn't know what to do with radio because no one really could imagine things like that. And I think it's even true that us quantum physicists, now that we're not so young, since we've been doing this for over two decades, as you said, uh, you know, we really need a young cadre of people coming in who 
are brought up with the notion of quantum teleportation. I, I couldn't have been brought up with quantum teleportation because it didn't exist as a concept, really. Well, I guess in Star Trek it did, but it didn't as a real concept exist. So the more we can get young people engaged, and so we have all kinds of things with Saturday physics lectures, um, things like that. And uh, I'm actually, I wear my other hat as the uh, director of Lab Escape, which is the world's only science-based uh, escape room at Lincoln Square Mall. Uh, which is actually the whole storyline is based on quantum information processing and it's just a fun way to interact with things and so that people don't have to be afraid of science. Science is just, it, it can be scary if you have terrible equations and things like that, but for the most part it's just explaining how everything is and so in that sense it's just extremely useful and oftentimes very, very beautiful. All right, well I, I appreciate you taking the time, uh, both of you, to come in and, and give us sort of um, a ground level, if you will, of of IQUIST and, and quantum computing and where we're going. And I'm sure as things happen rather rapidly, we'll bring you back. Uh, so keep us informed of things that are going on. And uh, we, we look forward to, to hearing the, the next big discovery in, in quantum computing coming from uh, the University of Illinois. All right, it was nice to be here today. Great to talk with you. So our guests have been Brian DeMarco and Paul Quiat. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Illinois Innovators is a production of Engineering at Illinois. All rights reserved. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or SoundCloud by searching Engineering at Illinois. We hope you'll help grow our core listeners by leaving a favorable rating on iTunes.